Amen. Well, if you would go in your Bibles to First Timothy chapter one, Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter one. Going to pick up here and read the first eleven verses. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, beginning in verse one. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues forth from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And so, Father, we come now again with an incredible text of Scripture before us, we pray that You would work powerfully among us and give us deep convictions about these things. We pray for clarity and help. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we're starting uh, this morning a new series, and the series is going to be called, or is called, The Household of God. The household of God. And it won't be a series of topical sermons. Uh, we are going to kind of ground ourselves in First and Second Timothy and just walk through these letters expositionally. And don't worry, it won't take us seven years uh, to get through. Uh, but there is an intentional purpose for this series. And I think if we could all, you know, kind of step back and look at the cross church over the last five words, five years, I think there's a couple of words that could really kind of define where our church has been over the last five years. Uh, one of them is the word transition. A transition. We have been in a place of transition, and I believe we have been maturing. Maturity marks our church. As we have been in transition, uh, we've gone from meeting in a gym, in a gym, uh, to now having a 42,000 square foot facility uh, to steward. Uh, we've gone from doing everything in-house with very little responsibility to having to think through administ administrative things, having to think through financial uh, structures and policies and procedures and all sorts of things that for years and years and years, we just did not have to think through very much. And now we're having to really focus on what does it mean to be a mature church in terms of administration? 
in terms of structure. There have been a lot of growing pains, uh, but by God's grace, we are maturing. The church has grown in terms of members and in terms of Sunday morning attenders. Uh, We're maturing in our understanding of corporate worship and what we are to be doing here together. Uh, We're maturing in our understanding of the offices of the church, of elder and deacon. We're maturing in our understanding of fellowship and discipleship and word ministry going forth in the church. And it just seems really profitable for us to step back and land ourselves in Scripture and to re-examine, not because we've never studied these topics, we have, uh, but because we're very forgetful, And there are are a lot of new faces. And so to go back and re-examine what God says about His church in His Word. We need to re-examine what God has said about His household. Uh, And one of those controlling convictions that we must have if we are going to continue to be a faithful church, a faithful local assembly of Christ's body is this. The church is God's church. We've got to believe that. That's got to be a conviction. It's God's household. Uh, Paul tells Timothy this in chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And these verses will sort of be the controlling statement or the thesis statement of our study in First and Second Timothy. He says this, I hope to come to you soon, But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So listen, there are right ways and there are wrong ways to behave in God's household. And God has given us instructions through His apostle on how to behave in the household of God. We don't get to do whatever we want in God's house. We don't get to structure this thing and set it up however we want. It's God's house. And when we talk about behavior in His house, it's not limited just to corporate worship on a Sunday morning. It's the whole life of the church. It's, it's what we're doing in each other's homes. It's how we're studying the Bible together. It's, it's how we're forming our discipleship, our relationships, how we're parenting our children, how we're stewarding our marriages and our resources. This permeates everything about the lives of believers. And these epistles just deal with so many uh, helpful topics that are relevant to us. Uh, they teach us about how to think about elders and deacons. It's very significant. Uh, They teach us about paying elders. Uh, They teach us how to think about caring for widows. Uh, These uh, epistles teach us how to address false teaching within the church. They teach us how to think about those who deconvert from the faith. That's a big popular movement right now, right? Everybody's deconverting their faith, and we need to know how to think about that. And these epistles address that The epistles address how to do discipleship within the church. And it just seemed best to the elders in this season as we're continuing to be in a season of transition and maturation to go back to the basics, uh, to put it one way, and just to land ourselves in the apostolic tradition as revealed in Scripture. And so we will look today at the first 11 verses in chapter 1. 
And the theme at hand this morning that arises out of these 11 verses is the theme of doctrinal purity. The theme of doctrinal purity. And not only doctrinal purity in this abstract sense, but how to maintain doctrinal purity in a local congregation, even when false teaching and false teachers come in and begin to teach contrary doctrine. God has called us, He's called His church to maintain healthy doctrine, sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, doctrine that accords with godliness, that accords with the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I want to break this sermon up into three sections and give us three points on how the church maintains doctrinal purity. Number one, uh, the church maintains doctrinal purity by identifying false teaching and instructing false teachers. We maintain doctrinal purity by identifying false teaching and instructing or charging false teachers. And I want to begin this section by pointing out just a couple of things from the greeting in verses 1 and 2. Notice in verse 2, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul is not writing to people he does not know. He's not writing to people in another church that he loves, but that he doesn't know. He's never interacted with. He's not even only writing to gospel companions. He's writing to Timothy, his true child in the faith. Timothy is near and dear to Paul's heart in a way that few people are. Paul meets Timothy back in Acts chapter 16 when he was at Lystra. And the Bible tells us that Timothy's mother was a Jewish woman who was a believer, but that his father was a Greek, meaning that his father was not a believer. And Paul takes him in and he he mentors him. He disciples him. He instructs him in the faith. And he takes him along with him and he disciples him. And in a spiritual sense, he becomes Timothy's father. Could you imagine being mentored by the Apostle Paul? That's Timothy. And so understanding Paul's audience that he's writing to his beloved Timothy is necessary because it enables us to see glimpses into Paul's pastoral heart. And as we see these over the weeks, I believe it will encourage us greatly. And I believe these will convict us as well as we move through these letters. And the second thing I want to point out is this. Uh, and this is more closely related to our topic this morning, Uh, Paul's understanding of God in the greeting is soaked with Trinitarian language. Paul is a Trinitarian. Look at verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And then later on in verse 2, he says, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul certainly believes in the Shema. He believes in the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 that says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. The Septuagint uses the word kurios or Lord for the name of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul believes that. He, he is a monotheist. Paul believes in the one true God of Israel, yet in this greeting here, he makes a distinction between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he calls Jesus Christ our Lord, our Kyrios. It's the same word that the Septuagint uses to name the one true God of Israel. And he says that's Jesus Christ. It's amazing. His, his theology assumes the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And so listen, no matter what form false teaching takes in the day we live and in latter days as we continue on, no matter what form it takes, the way to guard against it begins with knowing the biblical God. Knowing who He is. Knowing how He's revealed Himself. Understanding the Trinitarian doctrine of God. Nearly all Christian cults reject the Trinity or the deity of Christ as taught in the Scriptures. And this is necessary. Uh, it's necessary to preface this. Uh, any, any exposing of falsehood, any exposing of truth comes through knowing accurately who God is. And so brothers and sisters, know the biblical God so that you can worship the biblical God. Uh, teach the biblical God to your children. Teach the biblical God to your friends. Teach the biblical God to your co-workers. You cannot be passionate about the true God if you do not know who He is. You cannot be passionate about obeying the true Christ if you do not know who He is. And He has revealed Himself. Having an accurate knowledge of God is the first step in being able to deal faithfully with false teaching in the church and to preserving doctrinal purity in the church. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And so after the greeting, we are immediately brought into this problem that has arisen in the church of Ephesus. There are teachers, uh, men of some sort of esteem, possibly leaders or even elders, uh, who have begun to teach things that are inconsistent with the sound doctrine that Paul has delivered to Timothy and to the churches. Paul prophesied this, that, we would, that this would happen in Acts 20 when he spoke to the Ephesian elders for the last time. And in God's providence, we read that this morning. How amazing is that? That was not intentional. And he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. So they're going to come up from the church to draw away the disciples after them. Paul's prophecy seems to have become a reality, which is why he says to Timothy, Timothy, I urge you, Remain at Ephesus. Stay there. You may have other desires. You may want to go elsewhere, but this is important. Stay there and charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. And here we get a glimpse into the Apostle Paul's heart. Uh, he views this false teaching in Ephesus as an urgent situation that must be dealt with. It's urgent. Timothy must take action. Uh, false teaching in the church warrants immediate and urgent action. It warrants an immediate response, specifically by the elders of the church. Now, by extension, I think all the members of the body have a responsibility to discern false teaching 
to correct false teaching, uh, but the church's leaders, particularly its elders, as overseers, as shepherds of the flock, especially those who are paid to labor and teaching and preaching, have a responsibility to guard the church from false doctrine. And they see, we see them doing this in the New Testament. And so elders are negligent when they allow false teaching to permeate in the church and just sit back and let it stir and muster as people are led astray. And they have to be committed to charging false teachers, correcting false doctrine, and be willing to follow through with the process of church discipline if the person will not repent and continues to teach false doctrine. This is the instructions Paul leaves Timothy. And so Timothy is sort of an enigma in that he's living in this time between apostles and this transition where all the apostles are going to die and the church is now going to be led by elders who stand on the apostolic word. And Paul is, uh, Timothy is sort of in the middle of this transitional period and he is standing on Paul's apostolic authority in Ephesus. And he has Paul's doctrine, he has Paul's tradition, and he is responsible to guard that doctrine and to teach it to other men and to raise up elders and to make sure that the church is left in good hands as the men stand on Paul's apostolic teaching. And he's supposed to charge or instruct, as some translations translate the word, those who are teaching doctrine contrary to it. And so you see Paul's urgency in dealing with this situation. There's no beating around the bush. He cuts straight to the chase. Verse number three, I urged you, Timothy, remain at Ephesus so that you could charge certain persons. The, these, these men are known. There's a specificity here. Paul is not assuming that they're there. He's not just heard a rumor. He, know, he says, no, there are certain persons who are teaching different doctrine. Charge them, Timothy. Instruct them not to teach different doctrine. Different from what? What is standard doctrine? What is the standard doctrine by which all other doctrine must be judged to be different or strange? Well, he tells us in verse 11, the standard doctrine is doctrine that is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. It's Jesus' doctrine. It's Jesus' gospel, and it's the gospel that Jesus handed down to the apostles, and particularly Paul. So doctrine that swerves from the New Testament doctrine of the gospel is different doctrine, according to Paul. And he tells us, he defines different doctrine later in chapter 6, verse 3. He says, different doctrine does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, and the teaching that accords with godliness. Uh, this standard doctrine is not a truncated, narrow view of a few historical facts around the gospel. Uh, we have a lot of people, even evangelicals, saying that today. Well, we, we just need to agree on the gospel. Right? As if, if we just agree that Jesus was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life and died and was raised and ascended into heaven, that that's it. And everything else, you can be all over the place teaching all sorts of different things, but as long as we agree on a few, different, on a few facts, we all, we all should be unified. And Paul is saying, no, it's doctrine that accords with godliness. 
his teaching on morality that, that accords with godliness. And anything that doesn't align with Jesus' teaching, anything that doesn't align with who he is, historically and in his teaching, is a different doctrine. So brothers and sisters, even if people claim to affirm the historic Orthodox Christian positions, if they teach ethical or moral behavior that does not align with Jesus' teaching, they're teaching a different doctrine. They're teaching a different doctrine. And it's difficult to pinpoint the exact nature of the false teaching that was being promulgated in the church at Ephesus. Uh, Paul says in verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And he says in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul says something similar to Titus in chapter 1 of Titus, verse 10 to 14. I'm going to read this. For many are rebellious and full of empty talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision who must be silenced. For the sake of dishonorable gain, they undermine entire households and teach things they should not. As one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. And listen, therefore rebuke them sternly so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of men who have rejected the truth. And we know from Colossians that Paul takes issue with this kind of Jewish asceticism, this infatuation over feasts and days and what to eat and what not to eat. Paul is always having to deal with this. And so as best as we can tell, it seems that there were men at the church of Ephesus who were sort of fusing this Platonic Gnosticism, this kind of desire for this secret enlightened knowledge with this infatuation over the Jewish Old Testament and over the law and all these different characters in the Old Testament and bringing them together. And so perhaps they were men claiming to say, well, I know what it really means that Enoch walked with God. Let me, let me show you. I've attained to this high level of knowledge. I know what that really means. And, and all these allegorical understandings of Scripture, all these sort of uh, arguments over the genealogies and who comes from who and, and where people are from and all of these things. And Paul says that in, in verse 7 that they desire to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about. And he says they make confident assertions. Brothers and sisters, why do false teachers gain so much traction? Well, it's because they make confident assertions. Uh, they are crafty. Uh, they are charismatic. They speak well. They, they bring things together well that sound good. They draw conclusions from all over the place. They pull fancy together. And they draw people away who are not grounded in the truth of the Word of God. There was this infatuation with things that do not lead to godliness. That don't lead to greater devotion to Christ. That don't lead to greater love for the body. He says in verse 4, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So we could name a hundred different versions of this in our day. We simply don't have the time to walk through and talk about all the ways that this can happen. But this is what I want to put before us. Are you infatuated with something 
that does not lead to greater devotion to Christ. Does not lead to greater devotion to the brothers and the sisters. And I think we need to ask ourselves this question regularly. Am I becoming imbalanced? You know, you think about your favorite evangelical teacher, your favorite Christian author, whoever it is. You know, everybody has a thing. What's your thing? Is it biblical counseling? Is it, is it missions? Is it reformed theology? Is it the family and the recovery of gender roles in the family and in the church? Is it government and societal issues? Is it corporate worship? Is it singing? You know, there's all these really good things that we need to care really deeply about. But we have a tendency to become imbalanced and to deduce the whole Christian life into one thing that we really care about. Maybe one or two things that we really care about and we think it all has to, has to flow through that lens. And the problem with that is that when we become imbalanced, it could lead to beginning to swerve from the sound faith. Number two, the church maintains doctrinal purity by keeping love as its ultimate goal. Verse five, the aim of our charge or our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In verse 3, Paul's tell, Paul tells Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now he tells us what the goal of the charge is. It's love. It's agape love. So contrary to the false teachers who just want to amuse people, and speculate, and draw people away to themselves, Paul's intention is love. Paul's intention is the good of the church. Paul's intention is eternal life on behalf of the members of the church. Their goal is love. Not, not money, not selfish gain. Love that is produced by a pure heart. What is a pure heart? It's a heart that has a singular focus. That, that's focused on Christ. That's not wavering and tottering back and forth between Christ and the world. It's a heart that says, I want to please and exalt Christ with my life. Love that is produced by a good conscience. A conscience that is, in, that is informed by God's Word. That is bound to obey God morally. Love that is produced by a sincere faith. A genuine belief in the Lord Jesus. And a humble dependency upon Him and a willingness to embrace Jesus' teaching and, and humbly embrace it and say, I will obey this. I will do this. I will follow You, Lord, no matter what the cost, without adding anything to it or taking anything away, but embracing all of it as He is our Lord. Love is Paul's desired aim in charging false teachers and love is His motivation for charging them. And brothers and sisters, this leads us to an incredibly important point that's so greatly been corrupted in our day. It is not loving to sit back and watch believers swerve from the truth and continue swerving from the truth as they make shipwreck of their faith and crash and turn away from Christ. That is not loving. How did we get to the point where love is synonymous with not speaking the truth? How did we get there? 
We got there by not defining love biblically. We got there by not looking at how Paul gives instructions for maintaining purity in the church. And we've wandered away into what we feel is right. And people have crashed. Clearly, there are times when non-believers just refuse to hear anything we have to say. And, and there are seasons where it may be wise to step back and say, I'm going to try to win this person's heart uh, with my actions and gain their trust. But we are talking about keeping doctrinal purity in the church. And what a shame it is that a person claiming the name of Christ can drift doctrinally and no one do anything about it. And no one say anything and no one step in and embrace this person and help them along and we just watch it happen until it's too late. Because here, here's the thing. There is a broad spectrum of false teaching, isn't there? Uh, there's the total heresies. Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, all of these things where they totally deny uh, the basic tenets of the Christian faith. You have that, but you also have false teaching that doesn't necessarily deny the fundamentals, but it's just a, it's a minimal drift that continues to go and to go and to go. This is what we call heterodoxies. Heterodoxies are different than heresies. They may not be outright rejections of the Christian faith, but they're drifts from it. They're a deviation from the standard. And this is what's happening at the church of Ephesus. There are either true uh, doctrinal or moral drifts that are happening at the church of Ephesus. These deviations may be more subtle, and maybe they don't seem that bad at first. But here's the thing. The drift keeps going. And it seems that Paul believes that these certain persons that he's called Timothy to charge, he believes that there is still hope for them. And he says, teach them, instruct them not to teach different doctrine so that they may be restored to a place of love so that they may not devote themselves to all these useless things. But, but he has hope for them. They're not fully crashed yet, like Hymenaeus and Alexander have that we will see in a couple of weeks. There, there's still hope for them. And if they respond rightly to Timothy's charge, they can be restored to a healthy place of love. He has hope for these teachers and the means of their restoration is to be instructed in the truth. And so Paul doesn't say, well, Timothy, just sit back and, and hopefully it'll be all right. He, he doesn't say that. He says, charge them not to teach different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths. He says to Titus, rebuke them. And the reason we have to charge them is because we want them to be filled with agape love. We want them to have a pure heart. We want them to have, the, have a clear conscience. We want them to have a sound faith. We want to instruct people in the truth so that they don't become like those who turn away from the faith altogether and crash. And Paul says, I had to hand them over to Satan. Brothers and sisters, our maturity as a church will never grow beyond our maturity here. We will only be as mature as a church as we are mature as a people who love one another and instruct one another in the sound faith. A healthy church, 
a mature church may be more than this, but it is never less than a church filled with people who are so committed to the biblical standard, so committed to doctrinal purity, so motivated by the manifestation of agape love that they will charge and instruct those who deviate from the path. And as we grow as a church and we have more facilities to steward and more ministries and more administrative aspects to think about, we cannot lose sight of the fact that spirit-wrought unity comes through this, speaking the truth and love so that we grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. It's Ephesians 4.15. A mature church is a church where Romans 15.4 is a reality. Where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Could Paul say that about us? I think he could in many aspects. And it is a great privilege to me Uh, to be a part of a body where this is happening, where where there is an instruction in love, there is a commitment to doctrinal purity. It It is a blessing, but we could grow as we always will be able to grow here. And I believe that we have many godly men and women who have been equipped over the years to take a young, immature believer who's all over the place or maybe someone who's beginning to swerve from the path and to say, brother, sister, I will walk with this through you. I will walk with you through this. I will read Scripture with you. I will read books with you. Our pastors will teach about this. They'll exposit Scripture so that you can see for yourself what God has said in His Word. We're with you on this. But you have to stay on the path. You cannot deviate. And this cannot be done out of anger, or arrogance, or pride. So let me give a qualifier, lest some of us mishear this and think that we can walk out with just license to point at each other and not take the log out of our own eye, but just bash each other over the head and jab at each other over every secondary difference. That's not what I'm talking about. This is very important. Just as the apostle commands us on how to maintain doctrinal purity in the church, he also gives us the spirit by which to do it. He gives us the ethos by which to do this. And it's a spirit of gentleness and meekness and humility and grace. He goes on to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says in Galatians 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him how? In a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. We cannot be the church that uses truth as a justification for arrogance and pride and and quick-temperedness and and harshness and coldness and and just to jab at each other. We, We cannot let truth justify that ungodly end. Even the strongest rebuke, even the most severe warning can be done in a spirit of humility and love. We must remember this. Lest we become like the church at Ephesus had become by the time John wrote to them, 
or Jesus spoke to them through John in Revelation 2. Remember what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. He commends them for not tolerating those who call themselves apostles. He commends them for guarding the truth. But then he goes on to say, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Number three. The church maintains doctrinal purity by refusing to separate doctrine from life. We maintain doctrinal purity when we refuse to separate doctrine from life. These false teachers love the law, right? They love the Old Testament, but for all the wrong reasons. And Paul gives them somewhat of a a concession in verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good. But then he gives a qualifier, if one uses it lawfully. They weren't using it lawfully. And look at how Paul does this. This is masterful. He does not get into all the specifics of whatever their false belief was. He doesn't walk through point by point and show how it's wrong. He just gives us the the accurate picture of the law's use. He just shows up the truth and upholds it for everybody to see. There's a practical application here. I I do think there is a place for understanding the tenets of false religions, especially the closer we get to them. right? And and I'm all for apologetics. I'm all for knowing other religions and being able to interact with them. However, the best way to assess when someone deviates from the truth in the church is just to know the real thing really well. To know it inside and out. So that when someone drifts just a little bit, we're able to call them back. We're able to to see it and identify it and instruct them in the right way. Knowing God as He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures. Knowing Genesis to Revelation like the back of our hand. Read this book over and over. Listen to it. Listen to preaching on it. Read books about it. Know the book. Know the Bible. And he says in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. So, So Paul is not saying that there's no use for the law in ongoing sanctification. Uh, he's not saying that we can't use the law for instruction, uh, but he's saying that God's design for the law is not for us to speculate about. God's design for the law is to show sinners the kind of behavior that God condemns and requires. It's laid down for the unjust. And I agree with Denny Burke who argues that Paul in this list of vices is showing specific violations of the Ten Commandments. So it's like Paul is giving us practical commentary on the Decalogue here. And there's a very close parallel between these violations and the Ten Commandments in 9-11, through 11, especially with regard to the second table of the law. So if you look at uh, here in verse 9, it says that those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's a violation of the fifth command. Honor your father and mother. He says murderers, that's a violation of the sixth command. You shall not murder. He says uh, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality, that's a violation of the seventh command. You shall not commit adultery. Enslavers, the idea is taking someone uh, contrary to their will and using them for your own selfish gain. It's a violation of the command, thou shalt not steal. So that would condemn chattel slavery. That would condemn human trafficking. 
It says, you shall not give false testimony in the ninth command. Liars, perjurers. And notice, he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Isn't that odd? He, he gives us a list of moral violations, but he says they're contrary to sound doctrine. We have to see this. Paul, uh, in, in Paul's mind, life and doctrine cannot be separated. Life and doctrine collapse into each other in Paul's thinking. Moral obedience to God's law goes hand in hand with having sound theology. And the biggest issue today where we see evangelicals, or one of the biggest, I won't say it's the biggest, one of the biggest, where we see evangelicals who hold to the primary doctrines of the faith are just compromising is the area of homosexuality. And I'm not talking about the crazy in-your-face kind of manifestation of that. It's this whole issue of, you know, two people who have same-sex attraction, who commit to come together in this monogamous, consensual relationship. You've heard this, right? So many are just stumbling over that issue. And I find it fascinating that Paul mentions this in verse 10, the sexually immoral, and he says, men who practice homosexuality. And and I want to comment on this verse because, again, uh, so many people are talking about this. Burke's discussion on this in his commentary in 1 Timothy 1 was very helpful in me getting my head around this. Uh, The word that the ESV translates as men who practice homosexuality is one word, and it's only used one other time in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And it's not found in any Greek literature before Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And so some people will look at the term and they will say, Paul is not talking about just homosexual activity. He's talking about these sort of crude, illicit, Greco-Roman practices of prostitution and pedestry and things like that. I'm sure you've probably all heard this. And there is a major problem with that textually. The Greek word Paul uses here is essentially a hybrid of the word for male and the word for bed. And so you could translate it literally, as Burke says, one who beds a male, or more naturally in English, one who lies with a male. That's interesting, because there are two verses in the Greek version of Leviticus that use the exact same language. And I want to read them for us because I think it will show us that Paul clearly has in his mind Leviticus chapter 18 and chapter 20. So Leviticus 18.22 says this, You shall not lie or bed with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies or if a man beds with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. Both of them. And so it seems clear that Paul has in his mind not exploitive Greco-Roman practices, but he has in his mind what God forbids in his law. Why would Paul bring up Roman or Greek practices in a conversation where he's showing the right use of the Decalogue? It makes no sense. The whole point of contention has been over how to rightly understand the law. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And notice Paul doesn't say, unless it's mutual, 
and monogamous and consensual unless the government says it's all right. No, he, he, he says very clearly that the act of homosexuality along with all other sexual relations outside of God's definition for marriage is a violation of the seventh command. And we have to cling to this. Anything contrary to that is contrary to sound doctrine, brothers and sisters. Sound doctrine and biblical morality run parallel, and when we compromise in one area, we are going to compromise in the other area. And we see this all over the place. And brothers and sisters, God has called His church to maintain doctrinal purity and to conform more and more to His standard of living. This is what the Bible calls holiness. He has called us to be a holy people. This is His household. And so we do this for His glory, His honor, His fame. But we also do it because our goal for one another is love. It's love. Our goal is that our church would be filled with love coming forth from pure hearts and good consciences and sound faith in all of us. And sin is deceitful and the flesh is corrupt and the pleasures of this world are enticing and our enemy is crafty and he's seeking to destroy. And we need the Lord first and foremost, but brothers and sisters, we need each other. God, God has... He has designed it so that we are the instruments that He uses to preserve doctrinal purity and to preserve us so that we get to heaven. He has called us to help each other get to heaven without making shipwreck. What is keeping you from being that for someone? What is keeping you from participating in the maintenance of doctrinal and moral purity in this church and in the lives of your brothers and sisters? Is it busyness? Is it secret sin? Is it apathy? Is it just that you're not equipped? Whatever the case may be, whatever you need this morning is in Jesus Christ. He's sufficient. The Bible says that in Him, all things pertaining to life and godliness have been granted to us. You can come to Him. You can seek Him this morning. You can seek Him this week. You can seek Him right now as we prepare to come to the table. And so let me transition us now to the table. Uh, this table is not for those who are perfect. It's not for those who are perfect. It's not for those who have arrived to where they think they need to be. Uh, this table is for those who will confess that outside of Christ, I have nothing but in Him I have everything. And for those who have followed that confession up with baptism, uh, please come and, in, and enjoy uh, the meal together with us at the table. If not, we would ask you to refrain and just remain in your seat. Take a few moments there. Uh, pray. Do whatever you need to do. Meditate on the Lord's goodness. Meditate on the fact that He's holding you. And when you are ready, you can come get the elements and return to your seat. And we'll take it together. Let me pray for us. Holy and righteous Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your church. We thank You for Your Spirit. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us a very clear standard of truth. 
And that you have given us means to stay committed to it and not to deviate from it. And I pray for us, Lord, that we could love one another and maintain doctrinal purity in our church. We thank You, Lord. Help us now as we come to the table to remember Your death and Your resurrection, Your body that was broken and Your blood that was shed. And sanctify us, Lord. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.